I read an article this week, and it talked about some of the warning signs that you are unhealthy physically. Would you say that you are physically healthy? Here are some of the signs that they listed to demonstrate that you may be unhealthy physically. Number one, bad skin. Number two, sleep issues. Number three, bathroom problems. We won't delve into that one. Number four, lip balm reliance. Number five, bad fingernails and toenails. Number six, body temperature fluctuation. Number seven, cloudy mind. Number eight, you are consistently itchy. Number nine, premature graying of your hair. Interesting. Number 10, your legs swell on a regular basis. Number 11, you develop wrinkles in odd spots. Number 12, you consistently have bad breath. I know some of you are going... <laughs> Number 13 is yellowing eyes. And then finally, a swollen neck. Now, I don't know if any of these are true. I'm sure some of them are. But they are indicators or signs that a person is potentially physically unhealthy. Well, what's true in the physical realm is true in the spiritual realm with the church. There are certain signs or marks that a church is unhealthy. But rather than look at it from the negative perspective, let's ask it from the positive perspective. What are the marks of a healthy church? God wants His church to be healthy, and there are a lot of churches that are spiritually sick. Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning, so turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we want to talk about the marks of a healthy church. Again, if you're visiting with us, we're going through the book of 1 Timothy verse by verse, and we find ourselves in chapter 3. Now, why did Paul write this letter to Timothy? He mentions the purpose statement in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, and really this becomes the purpose of the whole epistle. He says to Timothy, I'm writing these things to you, Timothy, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, verse 15, and he was delayed, I write, here is his purpose, so that you will know, here it is, how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Paul, right at the outset, tells Timothy, the reason I'm writing you this epistle, and of course he wrote Titus to Titus, and he wrote another letter to Timothy. We call these the pastoral epistles because they give instruction not only to pastors and leaders, but also it's a blueprint for how the church should operate. Paul is telling Timothy here, the reason why I'm writing you is because I want to tell you how the church should operate. To put it in other words, how can the church be healthy? How can the church function the way God wants it to function? And really, that's the purpose of the pastoral epistles, is to give us principles, not only on how leaders should behave, but also how the church should operate. Now, obviously, the pastoral epistles are not exhaustive in telling us what to do. There are other portions of Scripture, nor does God give us all the different types of forms? What God does in the pastoral epistles in terms of how to have a healthy church is He tells us what the functions of the church are. For example, one of the functions of the church is to worship, but God doesn't tell us what style of worship should we have, what form. He's going to leave that based on the culture and the time in which you live. And so what the pastoral epistles do, particularly 1 Timothy, is it gives us the marks or the characteristics of a healthy church. Now, John has covered chapters 1 and 2. Let me review what John has looked at already and review some of the characteristics that we have seen thus far in terms of a healthy church. First of all, by way of review, a healthy church deals with false teachers and false doctrine. Secondly, a healthy church promotes holy living. Thirdly, a healthy church correctly handles God's Word and God's law. The false teachers in chapter 1 were twisting it. Number four, a healthy church engages in corporate prayer, particularly praying for those in authority. Number five, they seek to reach the lost. Remember, he says God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, and that's why we pray corporately. And then number six, 
they make a distinction between men and women's roles within the church. John ended chapter 2 talking about the function of men and women and their roles within the church. Now for this morning, we want to look at the seventh mark of a healthy church, and that is this, they are led by godly leaders. They are led by godly leaders, and that's one of the themes here of chapter 3. Now, godly leadership is so critical to the church. In fact, it is the map, it is the rudder that directs the church. If you have ungodly leaders, ungodly under-shepherds, you're going to have a church that is going to be unhealthy and diseased. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, one of the things that God indicted Israel for was the fact that they had ungodly shepherds that led them astray. And see, whatever the leadership is like, so goes the church. In Hosea chapter 4, verse 9, Hosea makes a remarkable statement. He says, like people, like priests. What do you mean by that? Whatever the priests are like, the leaders are like, the people will inevitably become. And so it's so critical that we establish godly leadership within the church. Now, what Paul is going to do here, as we are led by godly shepherds, is he's going to mention several categories of leaders. Let's look at the first category, and that would be overseers, overseers. Notice, if you will, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, it is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer, an overseer is someone who manages and oversees the church, it is a fine work he desires to do. And so the first category of leaders that he mentions here that should govern the local church are overseers. Now, we're not accustomed to using that term. Today, we use the term pastor, but there are actually three terms that the Bible uses, and they're not three separate offices, but rather they are three terms to describe the same office. First of all, you'll notice the diagram up there. There is the word elder. You'll see this in Titus's epistle, chapter 1. He calls them elders. That is an Old Testament term, and it refers to somebody, the, the Greek literally means bearded, and it refers to somebody who's mature in their walk with God. And so elders are those who are mature. Then he uses the term overseer, or if you have a King James Version, it uses the word bishop. That's the term used here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and the word overseer speaks of the leader's oversight over the church. He's to manage the church. That's a Greek term taken out of secular Greek. And then finally, there is the word pastor. We see that word used in Ephesians 4, pastor-teacher. We see it used in 1 Peter chapter 5, and that refers to the shepherding role of leading and feeding and correcting and comforting. And so these are three different terms that are used to describe the same leader. It's not three separate offices. Some denominations, like the Episcopalian church, they have a bishop who oversees a group of churches. And really what Paul is doing is he's using all three of these terms interchangeably to describe leadership in the church. And so the primary leaders of the church that are representative for the, uh, the church body are elders, overseer, and pastors. According to 1 Timothy chapter 5, they are the ones that have ruling authority. Now you say, well, where does the senior pastor fit into all this? Well, if you'll notice the diagram up on the screen, you will notice that the senior pastor or the senior elder is simply one of the elders. Now I know in our churches today, we have the senior pastor and he's kind of separate from the elder board, but in a sense, he's one of the elders, but he's simply the leader among equals. He's the one that gives the vision. He's the one that gives the direction. And he is the one, according to 1 Timothy 5.17, that does the primary leading and teaching. But he shepherds with a group of elders. And so the church is to be led primarily by a plurality of elders with the senior elder, senior pastor, or senior overseer, whatever term you want to use. Today, we are more familiar with the term pastor. He is the one that gives vision and direction. And so Paul says to Timothy here, you need to have proper overseers, pastors, and leaders, and shepherds in place if the church is going to function the way that God wants it to function. Now, what Paul does here in the beginning of this chapter is he basically goes over the characteristics or the leadership qualities that every pastor, elder, or overseer should exhibit. And the focus here is character. Character. 
It's not competency, although competency is important. The issue is character, who a person is. And he gives these characteristics not because you don't have a responsibility to follow them. He gives them to the leaders so that we would model them so that you can mimic your leaders. And so in a sense, this message is not only for me and John and all of the staff here and paid and non-paid volunteers, but also it's for you because you are called to imitate the leaders of the church. Now, when he talks about these characteristics, he's not talking about the perfection of a leader's life because none of us are going to clearly keep all of these characteristics perfectly. What you want to look for in a leader is pattern. You want to look for direction, not perfection. And so what I want to do here, as we look at this area of being an overseer, pastor, or leader that leads the local church, what are the character qualities that you should look for in a pastor? And this would apply to any local church around the world. Whenever you put somebody in a leadership position, you got to test them, and you got to make sure that they are modeling to a great degree these characteristics, although they will not be perfect. Now, we're going to go through these pretty quickly because there are 18 or 19 of them that Paul lists here and also in Titus. So let's go in rapid-fire succession as we look at them. The first characteristic is they must be a male. Now, this isn't a character issue here. This is a gender issue. But if you notice verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, if any man aspires to the office of overseer. Now, you would be surprised because in our day and time, there are a number of churches that have female pastors. And the reason why I disagree with that is because he calls it a male role here. In fact, he says they must be a one-woman man. That couldn't apply to a woman pastor. Now, remember, when John ended chapter 2, he said, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. He's talking about leading a local church. This is not to say that women are inferior to men. In fact, women are the backbone of any local church. Men and women are equal. But when it comes to function, it comes to role, God has given different roles to men and women. For example, it's no different than the home. Men and women, husbands and wives, are equal in terms of their value and essence before God. But in terms of function, God has established man as the head and women are to lovingly submit to their leadership. It's the same in the local church. And again, this is an instructive issue for our day and time because people want to say, well, Paul was a male chauvinist or Paul was reflecting his Pharisaic tradition and therefore this is why Paul says male. No, this goes all the way back as 1 Timothy chapter 2 says or, uh, to creation. It goes all the way back to Genesis. In chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, Paul says it was Adam who was created first, then Eve. And so Paul roots this in creation, and so they must be male. Secondly, they must be called. Notice, if you will, verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. The two operative words there are aspire and desire. You see, that refers to one's calling. There are people that desire to be in a leadership position of elder, pastor, overseer, and they want to be in the role because of ego and pride. They want power. That's not what he's talking about here, desire. There are people that have desires that aren't necessarily of God. But I believe one of the ways that God calls a man is he puts a desire in their heart, and then what happens is on the external, the outside, God will confirm it through other people. I remember when I was in college in Birmingham, Alabama, when God got a hold of my life, I switched my major from psychology to religion, and I had a hunger for the Word of God. And over a period of time, God implanted within me a desire to want to be in full-time ministry and to be a pastor. People say, did you have a Damascus Road experience? The answer is no. It was a gradual desire that God put in my heart. I was passionate about it. It was the only thing that I wanted to do, and I was singularly focused on it. And then other people confirmed my gifts. And so I said, well, Lord, I'm going to move in this direction. If you don't want me to go, then stop me. See, that's how I believe God calls an individual. And listen, it is a noble task, he says. That's why you got to make sure you're called. Because there's a lot of pastors, elders, and overseers that are not called. And when the going gets tough, what they do is they often bail. And so they need to be male. They need to be called. Thirdly, he says, He must be above reproach or blameless. He says in verse 2, an overseer then 
must be above reproach. And that above reproach is simply an overarching term to describe the rest of the qualities that he's about to list. And the word above reproach is a word, it's a legal term, and it refers to apprehend somebody. It's using of apprehending a criminal and taking them to court. And what he's saying here is if you're going to have a pastor or a leader or elder in the church, there can be nothing in their life that you could point to and say, that's scandalous. If that elder overseer pastor is living a double lifestyle, then that disqualifies them. Blameless doesn't mean perfect. It's talking about the pattern of his life, unless it's some major egregious sin. If a pastor embezzles $50,000 from the church, he can't say to the elder board, well, you know, this happens and it's just, it's kind of a picadillo, a small sin, no big deal. Well, no, that's a major breach of trust. Or it could be he has skeletons in his life. He's living a double lifestyle. So what he's saying here is a pastor, elder, overseer needs to be a man of integrity. And isn't that what God calls you to be as well? God calls you to be a person of integrity. What you say matches how you live. Not perfectly, but there needs to be consistency between what you believe, what you say, and how you live. And so he needs to be blameless, it says here. And then number four, he must be a one-woman man. Verse two, the husband of one wife. Now this one is debated among commentators. Some think that Paul is saying that an elder could never be divorced. If he has a divorce in his life, whether he's at fault or not, he is disqualified. That is a common view, but I don't think that's what Paul is talking about because there's a Greek word that he could have used for divorce that he doesn't use. Some say he's referring to a man or an elder cannot be polygamous. He cannot have multiple wives. Well, that really isn't an issue for us here. Maybe in Utah in some parts it is. But generally speaking, polygamy is not followed in our culture. And again, I don't think that's what Paul is referring to, although an elder should not have multiple wives. That would create a problem. I think he's referring to here what the Greek says is a one-woman man. It means if he's married, he is devoted to the woman that he's married to. Now, some people think this precludes single people from serving as an elder, pastor, or overseer. I don't think Paul is saying single people can't serve in that role, but he's assuming that most are going to be married. And he says, if you're married, you are true to the wife that you're married to. In other words, the pastor is not known to be a womanizer. He's not a womanizer. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have female friends, he's not friendly, but if he has a woman on the side and he's a womanizer, that's a problem. He's not qualified to be an elder. Well, then number five, he says he must be temperate or sober-minded in verse two. Now, literally, this means free of alcohol, so he's not under the, the intoxication of alcohol, but I don't think that's what he's referring to literally because he's gonna talk about wine later. He's using this metaphorically when he says someone who's temperate or sober-minded, it means they are clear-headed, clear-minded, balanced in their thinking. Because alcohol tends to cloud your judgment, and so he's using that metaphorically to say a leader in the church needs to be clear-minded, balanced in his thinking and judgments. He's not given to rash judgment, and he possesses spiritual discernment. He is seriously minded. He knows what God has called him to do, and he is serious about it. It doesn't mean he doesn't cut up and he doesn't joke. It just simply means he is clear-minded and serious about the direction he wants to go in. And listen, you don't want a leader leading the local church or a group of elders that are not balanced in their thinking, that are rash, that are not spiritually discerning. It doesn't mean they're never going to make a bad decision, but this needs to be their lifestyle. Then number six, he says elders, overseer, or pastors must be prudent or self-controlled. This means a leader lives a life of self-discipline, self-control, self-restraint. He lives a lifestyle of moderation. He's not given over to indulgences as a lifestyle. This would include not only alcohol, but and this one is a convicting one, but I read an article this week, eating. There are some pastors that are so unhealthy and so morbidly obese I had a friend one time, he said, I was looking at going to this church and I couldn't sit under that pastor because he was so morbidly obese, it reflected to me his lack of discipline in his life. And I realized that's a touchy area. We tend not to want to touch that. 
And I'm not saying we measure leaders up on their height and their weight. All right, next, let's measure you up, see if you're qualified. That's not the issue. But the issue is he lives a life of self-control as a lifestyle. And then he mentions a seventh one in verse 2. He is respectable. This means he possesses a well-ordered life. He knows how to order his priorities. One commentator said this, the ministry, quote, is no place for the man whose life is continually confusing of unaccomplished plans and unorganized activities, end quote. Now, have you noticed with these last three characteristics, temperate, prudent, and respectable, you know what Paul is doing there? He's talking about self-leadership. And here's the point. If you're looking at an elder, overseer, or pastor, remember those two, three terms are used interchangeably, you want somebody who's able to lead themselves. Because how can they lead the church of God if they don't have self-leadership? And you know what? That would go for you and I as well. If you're not an official leader, God wants you to have self-leadership. Because God calls you to lead your family and to lead your children. And if you're going to lead them, God wants you to be able to govern your own life and to discipline your own life. Well, number eight in our list, he mentions in verse two, the leader needs to be hospitable. And that word was used in that day to opening up your home to traveling missionaries and traveling preachers because they didn't have hotels. Today, that is not as relevant, but I think the principle behind that is a pastor leader needs to be personable, he needs to be approachable, he needs to be open, and he needs to invest his life in others. Now, this is not to say a pastor can't be an introvert, but listen, I've met some pastors, they, they just have zero people skills. They can't invest in other people. They're not open. Number nine in our little list, he mentions here, another qualification is he is not addicted to wine in verse three. And this would include any other substance. Now, Paul here is not prohibiting alcohol absolutely, but I think if you read the New Testament and the Old Testament, the Bible strongly cautions against leaders drinking alcohol as a wisdom principle, because often it can become a stumbling block, and furthermore, it can lead to not making sound judgments. And so, he says, Timothy, when you look at Ephesus, I want you to pick men that are not addicted to wine. They don't have drinking problems. And there was a well-known pastor here in South Carolina in Anderson, Perry Noble, and I'm not trying to put him under the bus because, listen, none of us are perfect, and we all fail, and God shows grace. But Perry Noble had a massive church in the area of Anderson, South Carolina. He had a number of satellite churches, even here in Columbia. I believe in the Columbia area, there's a big one going on now. But he had to step down from the ministry because of drinking and alcohol. He was addicted to wine, and the elders had warned him. They were gracious, and they said, hey, look, you've got to address this issue, and he didn't address it. And as a result, he ended up derailing spiritually. Well, then he mentions number 10, he is able to teach in verse 2. Now, this doesn't mean he's a golden tongue order. It doesn't mean that he's a very gifted speaker, but what it does mean is he has to be able to communicate biblical truth. He has to be able to articulate sound doctrine because Titus 1.9 says that he must not only know sound doctrine, but he must be able to refute those who oppose it, which means elders have to be able to communicate truth. When I led my church in New Jersey, probably of my eight elders, me being one of them, there was only three of us that could communicate in the pulpit. The others didn't have a pulpit gift, but they had enough biblical knowledge to be able to encourage other in sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And so they have to be able to teach. And then he says, number 11, they cannot be pugnacious in verse 3. And this is an interesting word in the Greek, not given to blows physically. In other words, the leader is not a bully. He doesn't say to another elder, hey, you want to take this outside and settle it? And I knew of a pastor who got in a disagreement with one of his elders, and he said to the elder, he says, let's go outside and let's settle this. Well, listen, that's not what God has designed. He doesn't want pastors to fight with their fists. They are not pugnacious. They resolve their conflicts in a diplomatic way. Then number 12, he is gentle in verse 3. And this means he is considerate, he is forbearing, he is gracious, he is forgiving, and he has a non-retaliatory spirit. You say, wow, this is a high standard. It is. 
And no pastor is going to do this perfectly, but this needs to be the bent of his life. Number 13, in verse 3, he is peaceable. What that means is he's not argumentative all the time or difficult. It doesn't mean he's a yes man that he gives into every, everybody's opinion, but it means that he's not obdurate. He's not difficult. And I'll tell you what, there are a lot of churches in America, and I've talked to a number of senior pastors, as we would say, that have boards where you have one or two guys that are very difficult. If you say black, they say white. If you say, hey, we want to reach our community, well, we don't want to do that. And so they're constantly a thorn in the pastor's side. Now, obviously, the pastor should not have unchecked authority where he's not accountable to anyone. On the other hand, you get boards that want to control the pastor where he's a hireling, and that's a problem. Then number 14, in verse 3 of 1 Timothy 3, he is free from the love of money. It doesn't mean he doesn't have money, but it means he's not greedy, he's not materialistic, or he's not dishonest in the acquiring of his money. And implied in this means he lives at a reasonable standard of living. Now, obviously, the Bible doesn't tell us what that standard should be. There are some megachurch pastors that get paid very well, and they've written books, and they're millionaires from the royalties of their books. I don't have a problem with that. They earned it honestly. But pastors and leaders need to be careful with their standard of living. I'm not saying pastors should be kept poor because there's this poor mentality. On the other hand, we've seen in our lifetime all these prosperity teachers that are living in $10 million homes, they got private jets, they got all this stuff going on. You see, I believe that's a stumbling block to not only people in the church, but primarily to the unbelieving world. And then he says, number 16, or number 15, he manages his own household. In verse 4 and 5, it says this, he must be one who manages his own household, and household here includes more than just wife and children, it includes his finances, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man, verse 5, does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And you see, Paul sees this as testing ground. If a man can't manage his home and his finances, that is a microcosm of the church. Because the church is called the household of God, and if you have the nuclear family, that's called the household. And Paul says, if he can't manage his home and his finances on a smaller scale, what makes you think he's going to be able to manage it on a larger scale? And so Paul sees the home as testing ground. Now, this doesn't mean that all of his children don't struggle, they don't go astray. It doesn't mean that all of them are saved. I know a pastor who believes that a pastor's, all of his children have to be saved. And he bases that on Titus 1 by the word believing. They must be believing. But that word in the Greek can also mean faithful. And I believe that he lovingly controls his family, not with an iron fist, but he disciplines his children. And so he has to manage his house. Number 16, he's not a new convert, but is spiritually mature. Verse 6, he says, and not a new convert. The word in the Greek there, neophyte, means newly planted. Don't put a new convert, a newly planted Christian, in that leadership position. Why? So that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. In other words, when you take a new Christian, there's the potentiality, if you put them in a leadership position too quickly, they will become arrogant and pompous, and they'll experience the same condemnation that the devil did. The devil got kicked out of heaven because of pride. So he says, don't put a new convert in. There are exceptions, like in Titus, he had to put leaders there because it was a new church. But as a general rule, you want to look for somebody that has been walking with God for a season of time. And then number 17, he has a good reputation with non-believers in verse 7. And he must have a good reputation with those outside of the church. That would be non-believers and even other Christians so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. In other words, if his congregation loves him, but he has a widespread reputation of being a man who lacks integrity, who is crooked, and who has raunchy dealings with other people, that could disqualify him. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not to say that everybody in the community is going to like him. They may not like him because he stands for truth. He may be persecuted because he takes a stand on certain issues. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about reputation. 
I remember years ago, my wife and I bought a minivan, and when I purchased it here in Columbia, I was talking to the guy that sold me the minivan, and as we were talking, I said, you know, who are your most difficult customers who often will get a vehicle and they will default on their payment? And you know what he said to me? He said, pastors. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. He said, no, pastors are notorious for this. You see, it shouldn't be that way. That's a bad reputation. Now, it doesn't mean you don't fail, but it means you get it right if you have wronged others. Number 18, and this is where we go to Titus 1, verse 7, to summarize what Titus says, because Titus really repeats all the qualities in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but Titus adds a few more, which shows us, by the way, that the lists are not exhaustive. He is just That means he's fair, he does what is right, he is devout, he has reverence towards God, and he loves what is inherently good. And then finally, number 19, Titus 1.8 says, he has to know sound doctrine so that he can encourage others in sound doctrine and be able to refute those who oppose it. One of the things that we did in my church in New Jersey when we were looking at potential elders is basically we had 70 questions they had to answer. And they would get, be given that form prior, and they were mostly doctrinal and practical questions. And then they would come before the elder board. It was a friendly environment, and we would ask them those questions, and they could take their answers. We wanted to see where they were doctrinally. We wanted to make sure that they could understand. And then we would talk to other people that know this individual to make sure that they're up to snuff. And so these are the characteristics and the qualities. So Paul says one of the marks of a healthy church is they are led by godly leaders. And the first leader category that he deals with is elders. And he says, Timothy, when you pick elders in Ephesus, because there is a bevy of false teachers in Ephesus, here are the qualifications and the benchmarks that you're to look for when you put a leader in place. Again, it's not the perfection of their life, it is the direction of their life. And if churches would follow this, churches would be a lot more healthier. Because again, leadership is the rudder of the church. If you have bad leaders that have bad character, you're going to have a problem in the church. Now, sometimes you get a bad egg. That happens. Sometimes a person presents themselves a certain way and they turn out later on to be bad and they fall. But ultimately, if churches would do this, they would see a lot more health. One of the things that we started here is a monthly prayer group with pastors in our community. We meet in the cafe once a month, the last Thursday of every month, and we pray. One of the things I love about it is just the fellowship that we have, and we just started this two months ago, and this particular time last Thursday, we were talking to a local pastor here, I won't mention the church, but he took over a church, and he's trying to turn the church around because it has a history of bad doctrine and bad leadership. And he's telling us about the challenge that he's having in dealing with his fellow elders. It's not always easy. When you take a church over and you try to change that church, that's why Peter Wagner says, it is easier to give birth than raise the dead. What did he mean by that? It's easier to plant a church than it is to take a pre-existing church and try to resurrect it. Why? Because a lot of times people don't want change and you have entrenchment within that fellowship. And so he talks about the elders and being led by them. Well, then he gives another category of leaders here, not only elders, but deacons in verse 8. And he uses the word likewise, which basically is a transition to tell us that he's switching to another subject. He says, likewise, the deacons. Now, who are deacons? They're different than elders. The word deacon, diakonos, means to serve, and it really means to wait on tables, someone who waits on tables. And if you read the New Testament, we're all deacons in one sense in the church because the word service, where Jesus talks about just serving people in general, the word diakonos or diakonia is used. So in one sense, we're all deacons because we're all called to serve. In another sense, there are people that have the spiritual gift of service. They're going to do it more passionately, and they're going to do it with greater frequency. In that sense, they're deacons because they have the spiritual gift of service. But then I believe what Paul is dealing with here in 1 Timothy 3 is a special class of deacons. This class of deacons is different than your normal service, than your spiritual gift of service. He's dealing with a category of leadership, and here's why. He gives character qualifications for them. 
Now, deacons do not have ruling authority, like 1 Timothy 5.17 says of the elders. He says, let the elders who rule well. And that's not dictatorial leadership. The word rule there means management. Elders have ruling authority. Deacons are to come alongside the elders and serve them, and deaconesses, as we're going to see in a minute. And so their role is to wait on tables to help the elders. In fact, the first mention many people believe of deacons is in Acts chapter 6. Remember when they were having a problem with the widows and some of the widows that lived outside of Jerusalem were being neglected? And so Peter has to deal with this problem. And he says, look, we can't take ourselves away from the word of God in prayer. He says, let's select some men with character and they're gonna serve the meals to these widows. And so many believe that those men were the first deacons, and notice what they did. They came alongside the apostles so that the apostles could do what God called them to do, which was to feed the flock, and they took care of the practical issues of ministry. So what are the character qualities of a deacon? This we'll go through a little bit quicker because he really repeats the same ones, except a few that are different, that of the elders. He says this, beginning in um, verse... Eight, deacons likewise, and here he's introducing, like I said, a new category, must be men of dignity. That is, they're serious-minded, they're committed, not double-tongued. In other words, they're not fork-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, same thing as an elder, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, they hold the sound doctrine as revealed in the scripture and they live it out. That's what he means by a clear conscience. Verse 10, these men must also first be tested. Now he doesn't mention that for the elders, but we can assume that it's the same for the elders as it is for the deacons. Before you put anyone into these offices of leadership, they need to be evaluated. You have to have time to observe their life. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says the sins of some people are obvious. You know right off the bat, they're not qualified. But he says this in 1 Timothy 5, the sins of others trail behind them. What does he mean? It's not always obvious on the surface. You got to get to know that person and you'll see if they're qualified. He says, let these men, verse 10, be tested Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach, blameless, men of integrity, women of integrity. Deacons must be husbands, verse 12, of only one wife, good managers of their children and their households. And then he says in verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a high standing. In other words, they're going to be highly respected in the body of Christ because of their service. And in addition, he says, and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, they're going to have spiritual confidence and dependence on the Lord, and they're going to be rewarded in eternity. And then he mentions another category here. You have elders, overseer, pastors. That's the first category of leaders. Then you had deacons. And then he mentions another category, deaconesses in verse 11. Notice what he says, women. And I think here he's not referring to the wives of the deacons. Some commentators think he's referring to the wives of the deacons, but here's what's interesting. He doesn't mention the wives of the elders. And here's why I think he's referring to another category of people that serve officially in the church, deaconesses, women, is because notice verse 11, women must, here's the word, likewise. Whenever he uses that word likewise, that means he's transitioning into another thought. The elders are to do this, this, and this. Likewise, the deacons are to do this, this, and this. Likewise, the deaconesses. So the word likewise shows us there is another separate category here of servants, and they are females. Like Phoebe in Romans chapter 16, verse 1. He says, women must likewise be dignified, if they're a deaconess, serious-minded and committed, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. And so that's the list of those who lead the church. And so any healthy church is going to have qualified leaders that lead the church. So goes the leadership, so goes the church. Now, how does this apply to Calvary Chapel? Because some of you say, well, we don't have official deacon or deaconesses. Now, there's two positions on this. Let me show you the diagram up on the screen. I think you'll better understand what I'm talking about. Not that one, the other one, Noah. You have three groups right here. 
You have the elders, overseer, pastors, they lead the local church, and then you have, in some churches, the staff, they come alongside the elders, and then they have a set of deacon and deaconesses. And both of these groups serve the elders so that the elders can focus on the spiritual matters of the church. There are a number of Calvary chapels that use this model right here. Their staff is different than their deacon and their deaconesses. And you know, the deacons and deaconesses will serve communion, et cetera, et cetera, and they do a lot of practical tasks. Now, at Calvary Chapel, we do it a little bit differently. If you'll notice here, we have the elders, and you have two groups. The elders and the staff equals what? Deacons and deaconesses. Now, when I talk about staff, I'm not talking about just our paid staff, but I'm talking about unpaid staff as well. Anyone who is a ministry leader in the church, they are our deacon and deaconesses. And so some use both models. Some will have elders, staff, deacon and deaconesses. Others will say, no, you have elders, and then you have your staff, paid and unpaid. They are the deacon and deaconesses. And that makes sense. Why? Because all of the staff here, whether paid or unpaid, ministry leaders, they have to live according to these standards before we pick them. And so Paul's point here is that any church that is going to be healthy, there needs to be a focus on character. Now, when I selected leaders in churches, here was the categories that I looked at. Noah, you could put that diagram back up. The other first one, I always look at these four things when picking an elder. Number one, character is the primary focus because that's 1 Timothy chapter 3. Character needs to be central. It needs to be paramount. Then content. What do they believe? What are their values? Not that they have to agree with me on every minor doctrine, but there needs to be harmony between values and beliefs. Then competency. Are they competent? Competency is important. And then finally, chemistry. Are they able to get along with other people? Are they relational to a certain degree? So this is how you select somebody based on, I believe, what would make a good elder, leader, and deacon in the church, particularly elders. It's character-focused. Listen to what John Maxwell says about character, and I think this is a great quote, because character is important for all of us. Character makes trust possible, and trust is the foundation of leadership. You build trust with others each time you choose integrity over image, truth over convenience, honor over personal gain. It is true that charisma can make a person stand out for a moment, but character sets a person apart for a lifetime. John Wooden, who was the famous basketball coach, said this, character is essentially who you are as a person, especially when no one is looking. Character is different than reputation. Character is who you really are, whereas reputation is what others perceive you to be. End quote. That is an awesome quote. Listen, we could put on our fake pepsin and smiles on Sunday and pretend that we're Christians, but ultimately, who we are in private when no one is looking demonstrates our real character. And then Andy Stanley gives another quote about character. Your talent and giftedness as a leader have the potential to take you farther than your character can sustain you. In other words, there's a lot of pastors that are very gifted communicators, gifted writers, but what happens if they don't have the character? they end up crashing and burning. And so their gifting exceeds their character. And so if we want to be a healthy church here, and I believe we are, we got to have godly leaders in place. Elder, overseer, pastors. We have an elder board, and we want men who are committed to walking with God. And then we have deacon and deaconesses also to lead, which would be our paid and unpaid staff. Well, there's an eighth thing that Paul mentions to Timothy here, if a church is going to be healthy. The seventh thing was they must be led by godly leaders. The eighth and final thing for this morning is if a church is going to be healthy, it must be word and truth focused. It must be word and truth focused. And we're going to hurry up through this one. Notice, if you will, verses 14 through 16. He says to Timothy, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, and he was delayed, I write you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. And the household of God is simply a term that refers to the church as the family of God. The church is not a building. We are the church of God. We are the building. We are the household of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And then he uses this term to define the church, which is the church of the living God. It's God's church. He lives within all of us. And then I want you to focus in on this last phrase here, and this is where the Word of God needs to become central and focused in the church. The church is the pillar and support for the truth. There it is. Any healthy church is going to make the Bible its focus. It is going to be the foundation. It is going to be the pillar by which the church is built. Any church that is not word-focused, that doesn't base its beliefs and its practices on the Word of God, will ultimately drift. Now, when Paul used this term, pillar and support of the truth, Timothy was in Ephesus. I believe he was talking about the temple of Diana. If you look at this picture up here, you will notice this is the temple of Artemis in Ephesus, and it was one of the seventh wonders of the world. Notice when he says here, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Here's the foundation, and that's what the church is built on, is the Word of God. In other words, our foundation is Scripture, our beliefs, our practices are based on the Scripture as the foundation, and we are to guard the truth. And then he mentions the pillars. Now, in this temple right here, there were a hundred of these pillars, and they were about 60 feet high. And you know what the purpose of the pillars were to do? They were to hold up the roof so high so that people could see the roof when they came in from another city. And it was to talk about the grandeur of the particular temple. And so here's Paul's point to Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, the church is not only the foundation of the truth, we build our lives on it, we build our churches on it, but it's the pillar as well. It holds up the truth so that the world can see it. And that's why any ministry that's going to be effective, any church that's going to be healthy, must be word-focused. We don't worship the Bible, but it is the basis of what we do. And listen, you look at a lot of seminaries historically and a lot of churches that drifted from the Word of God, they became liberal, and they're now dying. Now, as we close, he mentions one pillar and one foundation in particular, and this becomes the foundation of any church in verse 16, and that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. What he's going to mention here in verse 16 was many people believe a hymn or a creed that the early church would sing or quote. And the reason why they did this was because it was truth. This is how they communicated truth in the first century because not everyone had a copy of the Bible. And so they would memorize the Bible and truth and doctrine through hymns and through creeds. And so he's going to give one right here. And this is an example of the church being the foundation and the pillar of truth. He says in verse 16, by common confession. In other words, all the churches confess this. Great is the mystery of godliness. All the churches agreed with that statement. Great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness. That was a common saying in that day. What do you mean mystery of godliness? He's talking about God becoming flesh. That was a mystery in the Old Testament. Jesus revealed that in the New. Now, here is what he quotes. Here was the hymn. I'm going to sing it for you. Just kidding. He who was revealed in the flesh... That speaks of Jesus' incarnation when he came in human flesh and he died. This is sequential, by the way. He was vindicated in the Spirit. That speaks of his resurrection when the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. It vindicated his claim that he was the Son of God. He was seen by angels. That speaks of his ascension. And so notice the progression. He talks about him coming to earth as a man. He died. He rose from the dead. He ascends back. And then he's proclaimed among the nations. The church went out and preached it. And what happened? They, he was believed on in the world. People got saved. They got converted. And then taken up in glory probably refers to Jesus coming back in glory, not his ascension. And so he says, this is the truth that the church holds to, that it confesses, and you notice what the truth is? It's the person of Jesus Christ, his work and who he is. That's the central truth of the church. And you know what I love about this? Was that he was proclaimed among the nations. As I close, I usually don't like to recommend movies, but one movie I'd recommend you go see is the movie Harriet Tubman. I think it's called Harriet or it's called Tubman, I can't remember. It's a great documentary about this lady in the 1800s that basically established the Underground Railroad where she would take slaves back to freedom. She was a slave herself. 
And at one point during the movie, she's preaching to a bunch of men who were committed to freeing slaves in other parts of the U.S. And they were dressed all nice, and persecution began to ramp up. And so some of these men and women that were very well-dressed said, you know, we got to change our methods because they're finding out that we're freeing slaves. And they had to go all the way up to Canada. And she wanted to go south to get these slaves out of there. And they said, wait a minute, Harriet, it's like 600 miles to get a slave from the south and go all the way up on the border there near Canada. And she made a very compelling speech. Listen, this movie, I was sitting in my seat going, man, this woman's got conviction. And she said during her message to them, she said, listen, none of you here experienced slavery. I did. I know what it's like. I know what the beatings are like. I know what it's like to be enslaved. And she said, there's a lot of them that are enslaved. And here's what she said. She said, I will give life and limb. I will spill my blood to make sure that I go back to free those people. She says, I don't care how many miles it's going to cost me. She goes, I am committed to this. And I thought, wow, what a message for the church today because people are enslaved to sin. They don't know Jesus Christ. And you know what? We have the truth. We have the pillar and the foundation of the truth, and God calls us to proclaim it to others, to set the captives free. Isn't that our message? And yet the church is too inwardly focused. We're focused on our families and our wealth and our prosperity, and we forget that there's a lost and dying world out there. And listen, we've got to establish that as a conviction. Amen. And so I want to challenge all of us, each one reach one. That's the truth. And so what are the two marks of a healthy church that we looked at this morning? Number one, they are led by godly leaders, elder, overseer, pastors, deacon, deaconesses. And then finally, they make the word of God their central focus. It is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And listen, you got to be a person who knows the word, study it, meditate on it, not just for information, but transformation that you may have that relationship with Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for reminding us of a healthy church that has godly leadership and that is focused on the truth of your word. Father, I thank you for Calvary chapels, many of them, and there are a lot of other good godly churches in our country that understand the importance of godly leadership and understand making the Bible the foundation and the pillar of truth. Help us to continue to do that, and God, raise up a new generation of pastors and leaders that will be word-focused, that will be spirit-dependent, and that will be great commission galvanized. God, strengthen us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.